All right, welcome to a special episode of the Ask a Cycling Coach podcast presented by Trainer Road. I'm Coach Jonathan Lee, and I'm up in Truckee, California. We're up at 7,000 feet, roughly. And I'm with Jeff Kabush, 14-time uh, national champion now? Uh, might be 15 now. 15, yeah. 15-time yeah, Canadian national champ, uh, cross-country rider, five-time cyclocross champion. Yeah, and I just won the marathon title for the first time this summer. Sweet. Congrats, man. So, covering the gamut of off-road national championships, um, you've been around in the sport of mountain biking for a long time, but not just around, you've been prominent. When did you start getting into mountain biking? Well, I grew up uh, on Vancouver Island in the mid-90s, and I guess my first experience that kind of got me hooked was uh, as a junior, I started racing across Canada, did well and qualified for the World Championships in 1995, and uh, that, uh, after playing a ton of sports growing up, that kind of experience going over to Germany and seeing what the sport was all about really got me hooked and decided to focus on that. Afterwards, I went to school. and in Victoria, University of Victoria, and did an engineering degree along the way as I kind of came up through the ranks. And breakout season that kind of launched me internationally was in 2000 when I kind of uh, qualified from out of the out of the woods into uh, the Sydney Olympics and finished ninth there. And uh, finished off my degree in 2003, and then just been focused on racing my bike since then. So yeah, I, f- I forgot to mention that you're also a four-time Olympian, right? Uh, would be four if it wasn't for four. a couple guys taking EPO, but only only been to three. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's thrown a lot of wrenches and spokes over the years. <laughs> that's for sure. So um, specifically, cross-country mountain biking, you've been doing that for the majority or for the whole length of your career. Yeah. You've also dabbled in. You just mentioned more endurance side of things with marathon, but cyclocross too, right? Yeah, also, I mean, um, in the early 2000s or mid-2000s, I also raced the profession on the road, kind of dabbled a bit with Jittery Joes out of um, in Georgia, and Symmetrics was kind of a powerhouse team out of Vancouver, which kind of launched the career of a lot of the, the current Canadian ro- roadies. But, uh, you know, I love riding all kinds of bikes, and um, mountain biking's definitely didn't, been my passion at, at the heart of it, but really, really enjoying the aspects of road and cyclocross as well. Awesome. So that's so. This is a cool perspective. I think a lot of us that are listening here are road riders or we're, we're mountain bikers, but we kind of cross over between the two. And the bike handling tips between that, we'll get into that later. But I think that that's going to be something that's that's going to be interesting here, um, since you've been on the road too, which is pretty cool. Um, something that I wanted to cover really quick with you. Um, You've, when did you win your first title and then when did you, or your first national title and when did you win your last national title? Uh, the first national title, I guess, was I think 2002 I won the, the I won one U23 title, which might have been the year two before. Um, that was a new new category, U23. Uh, so I think that might have been 99 and then 2002 was my first senior title. And, uh, uh, last, I won the marathon title this year, but last senior title was, I think, two or three years ago. Uh, so that's rare to have, like, to be dominant for that for that long in the sport, especially something like cross country that tends to be, you see, like that higher intensity and then the constant hits over and over where you're going back up to high intensity. You're unique in that aspect. What do you think that, what's been your secret or what's helped you stay on top for that long? Well, I mean, I've, I've certainly had to evolve, and that's, I think, one thing is I've never 
felt like uh, you know you never want to feel like you've achieved or arrived and so I'm always trying to learn and that's what's kind of kept me motivated throughout my career um, trying to learn new things and how to push myself in training been uh, gone down a lot of different paths in physiology working with uh, different devices and techniques and uh, but even the the actual XC events have changed a lot my my first world championships as a junior the junior winning time was over two and a half hours and <laughs> I, I finished uh, I think just under three hours in 99th place but that's, that's what, marathon times now yeah I mean it's longer and now the XC races are you know one closer to an hour and a half so it's really changed the demands of the sport and maybe moved away uh, from a bit of my strengths which were always kind of pacing and uh, more kind of the diesel and technical skills uh, but so I'm kind of transitioning next year to a bit more of the kind of endurance and trail trail racing kind of where my passion is so what what have you changed in terms of your training I mean you were you were young and you were new to the game of training I, I assume and then I'm sure you know you're very experienced now so of course there's going to be a natural progression but in terms of kind of going parallel to how the sports change from being more longer and more about pacing and keeping yourself at a lower intensity and making that last versus now it's short and intense how has your training changed to fit those demands like specifically well yeah it definitely used to be more of an endurance time trial and uh when the races were longer it could start out on the first lap and control the pacing on in back those days we didn't have power so it was you know sticking to the feeling and the heart rate and not worrying about you know position the start in the last you know half hour 45 minutes i'd mow down tons of people but that half hour 45 minutes isn't in the race anymore so it's it's much more explosive and on off efforts and the courses have gotten more compact and you know steeper climbs and steeper descents so it's had to change the train to kind of adapt to those loads of the effort so it's definitely you cannot not wait around to the starts now it's uh, super super important uh the starts and even before you get to the race you need to work your way up to get on those front front couple rows to get a chance and uh you need to put out high power and then be able to recover so you know had to definitely adapt to what I've done less kind of longer steady stuff and more kind of you know specific efforts to match match what I do in the races so do you do the typical thing that you see like a lot of professionals do where they a lot of pro riders have a lot of time to train so what they'll do is in the off season or building up when they're when they're kind of establishing their base or getting into a build phase working toward whatever their peak is they'll spend a lot of time doing the lower intensity stuff but just you know low intensity high volume do you still do that or do you are you even shifting in that portion or that that phase of your training are you doing more intensity uh, I think it, it's throughout the year it's a balance um, of of most aspects I think some of the I definitely drop some of the shorter harder specific stuff in the winter but it's tough I mean I wish I had more time to train but uh, our seasons have been getting longer and longer especially with cyclocross so that off season where I can could put in more basic hours and the endurance hours has gotten shorter and shorter especially when I'm trying to, to mix in cyclocross but for me generally it's trying to keep that balance of kind of 80% kind of basic endurance and 20% of the, the harder stuff and that 20% mix will kind of change as I get closer to the race season and the specific races. And I assume that it gets more specialized specifically toward the demands of like the event right like for uh, sure. recently you came out and actually you um, 
you made the race really hard for me. We did the Carson City off-road, and I just did the crit the day before, and it was my first race in like nine months. You you broke away, you were in a breakaway with Russell Finsterwald, right? Yeah. And you guys, and then you ended up taking it. Yeah, somebody said that you just like walked away, it looked like you decided to, to, to pedal, and then you just kind of walked away, so good job <laughs> on that one. And you made it really hard for me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was yo-yoing off the back, but in that race, um, really the main goal was the next day, and the next day was long sustained climbs, a 50 mile race, um, but really sustained stuff. Um, for that type of a race, I assume that you tailored your training to be more specific to those demands versus something like cross country nationals? Yeah, I mean, definitely when I'm um, looking at those races, it's a lot, a lot for me is kind of scheduling my season where I can, you know, when we're racing so much, it's sometimes in the summer you can race every weekend. So it's trying to schedule in some, some breaks throughout the season where I can get back into some basic kind of training and definitely before you know it's a bit of a switch to the the whiskey off road with the 50 mile events to make sure i have time to kind of get back and do some basic long rides but i mean that's where those both those the crit and the the uh, the 50 mile are really a lot of experience and uh yeah. could help help win those events uh knowing my competition and the, the tactics on the, the crit's a lot of fun and uh i mean the the 50 miler uh definitely holding on in the climb and uh descending is my strength so i was pretty happy to get to the top of the marlet peak there and uh battle it out for the on the way back home yeah so when you let's talk about that specific race because that's actually a really good example because we have two polar opposites um so for those that don't know uh the epic ride series they start off the day before the race for the pros they have a, a criterium but it's 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 a fat tire crit yeah and um it's all on it's mostly all on road or are they all on road 100%? they're all on road yeah mm-hmm. so yeah it's, a, yeah it's a friday friday is a fat tire crit saturday is amateur races and the pros are That's on right. sunday so we have a day off but certainly on there's not a lot on the line on friday so some people are definitely you know being a little conservative still a big deal to to win it in front of sponsors so you know, I knew my competition, and I know some people were going to be a little lazy tactically and try to do as little work as possible. So I knew if I could get away and create a gap, uh, especially with a guy like Russell, that could maybe make a lot of the guys kind of give up and take advantage of uh, some fast tires and cornering. And, uh, yeah, then it was just experience kind of, you know, monitoring my effort and making Russell work too and kind of <laughs> sensing his weakness and time in the attack at the okay. right, right time. So that course was more or less, uh, the majority of it was flat with really one main rise in it. Um, and then you ended up dropping back down. The corners, since we are on mountain bikes, um, I know I didn't I didn't do the smart thing and put road tires on. I should have, just didn't have enough time. You were on skinnies, right? You were on slips. Yeah, no, it was definitely a big advantage in the, the cornering where, yeah, not, not the entire field. So there was a big advantage in yeah. cornering speed. Yeah, because I was chattering coming through the turns, um, just coming through and losing traction and just chattering through when I was going through at race pace through there um, but you guys were able to roll away where did you end up making the attack to initiate the breakaway or did Russell initiate the breakaway and how did that happen well we were kind of trading off half lap for half lap and uh, knew I mean everyone would expect it to come on the last lap but uh, I was feeling you know strong and there's a long straight stretch into the wind after Russell's half lap, so with a lap and a half to go, I decided that I'd surprise him by attacking a little bit early, long way out, and uh, I think I was able to make a strong acceleration after he'd done his turn and uh, get that gap and 
kind of nail it shut and make him make him give up there and uh, nice. be able to cruise in for the win, which was really nice. How much do you know roughly how much power you put out during that attack or during that race as a whole? Uh, I have the file. I can't remember. It was definitely, uh, you know, some some good threshold work there. Uh, probably up around, a, I'm guessing, a little over a thousand watts for you know, 20, 15, 20 seconds to to get the gap. Okay, perfect. And then what do you what do you what would you usually or do if you know for that race we can talk about that. But what would you usually have for like a normalized power, average power on that type of a race? Because it's 45 minutes long, about right? 30 minutes. Yeah, long-ish. 30 minutes. Yeah. Um, I can't remember specifically for that that kind of effort, uh, but um, I know like in the the cross country races, it's a lot on off, and then normalized power is usually in the mid to high 300s, depending on the course and how much is pedaling, how how technical it is. And then how much do you weigh to give people an idea of power to weight? Uh, around you know high 160s, 170 usually. Awesome. Yeah, and that's in pounds, of course. It's not yeah. kilograms. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Try to yeah somewhere between 75 and 77, 78. Cool. Then, yeah. Awesome. So that, that's that's really high for those that are keeping score. Really high. I'm not going to do the math right now in my head, but that's high. Um, now with that type of a race, you you switch gears and you go into the to the the real main event, so to speak, which is the long. And the, most of their races, they're they're all longer. Um, they don't have the traditional or the the now modern cross country elements usually of short, steep, fast climbs. There's definitely no short loops. It's big, long loops. Um, so what did you do on that race? What was the strategy coming in and how that one unfold? Even, yeah, even Carson City was even unique for 50 miler because it was more or less, it had a hard climb at the end, but more or less the first hour and 45 minutes was climbing uh, from Carson City up to the top of Marlet Peak. And you know, my, my only goal was to get to, to Marlet Peak in the lead group. So I was doing everything I could just to, you know, hang in. And, you know, my strength being the technical side there, it wasn't a lot of technical no. stuff to kind of sag and make up time there. So I was definitely just falling wheels, trying to stay in position. And uh, it was still, it was, uh, I mean, af- after an hour 15, I was, you know, muscles were on the limit and uh, holding on, kind of yo-yoing on the climb and just trying to hang in there as much as I could. And we ended up with four guys over the top of the the, the climb and kind of regrouped to, to five or six as we made our way back. And then how did it, uh, so, and for those that don't know, it's more or less the profile is a big up and then a big down. The down wasn't very technical. Um, no. Maybe one section that was kind of, maybe, but not really technical, right? So what did, after you crested the top, how did the race play out compared to your goal or your strategy? No, I mean, I was I was pretty excited to be in that lead group, and we definitely regrouped, and it was a little, little tactical coming off the rim trail. And uh, there's one... One section that I pre-rode is, is called the Secret Trail, and I knew it was going to be really dusty. Um, and after that Secret Trail, there was one more 20-minute climb, uh, and uh, I wanted to actually lead into this kind of dusty technical single track. And Russell was right on it. Russell Finsterwald is also a great descender, and we we raced for that single track. He led in and. Uh, he absolutely sent it, and I, I followed him, and we came out of the, the bottom of this short descent with probably at least, because of the dust, 30 seconds on the rest of the guys. Wow. And uh, Russell had got popped a little earlier, so I was confident in my strength on the last climb, but so when we approached this last 20-minute climb, um, 
I kind of accelerated a bit and got a small gap, but it was uh, intensely painful 20, 25 minutes because it's an open climb and I could see the chasing three or four guys the entire climb as we, we switched backed up and was, a lot it, of switchbacks by the way yeah, yeah. and uh, that was 20-25 minutes just down my limit and uh, I was pretty happy once we started pointing downhill towards the, the finish in Carson City and hung on just I think a little over a minute on the rest of the chase guys nice that's solid um, so do you know how much power for that first hour and 15 minutes is pretty consistent the pitch you're going yeah. up a fire road the surface certainly varies it's kind of like DG, that loose, deep, decomposed granite in spots, but do you know what you averaged on power? What was your, did you even have a goal going in on power for that type of a race, or? Uh, well, I definitely know, like, where my limit is, and uh, for that, I mean, don't really have a choice but to try to follow as smoothly as I can, and, and in the undulations, I'd try to sag it, but even so, there's, I, I remember from the file, there was... Uh, at altitude, which is fairly high for me, 20 minutes over 400 in that Jeez. in that first climb. Uh, climbing, yeah, we were up five, six, seven thousand. So definitely some really hard sustained sustained sections there to to make it to the lead. And we definitely eased off a little bit here and there, but um, some really solid power numbers all the way to there, all the way to the top. Yeah, that's that's something that I think that people don't realize is the fact that you have to be able to put out those sustained efforts in a lot of races. Races. Even cross-country racing with the steep climbs, the in-betweens are not resting. I mean, you're really having to keep the power down. So mountain bikers don't just have this huge ability to, you know, put out power, then repeat that, but it's also the sustained power. Um, do you, when you prepare for a race like that, do you have, do you use power for pacing at all? Um, clearly there's, you definitely, you know, you've got to stay with groups and everything else, but do you have a power number in your mind beforehand, or do you just let the power read what it reads? Uh, I mean, in XC, it's, it's really hard to follow any pacing, but certainly in um, rides like the Epic Rides, you can, I mean, I know my pacing, and it's important also knowing, knowing the feeling from training on what I can sustain and experience, but certainly really like races like uh, Marathon Nationals in Canada's here, I really use my, my power meter. It's, I mean, it's also super important just paying attention to nutrition as well, but um, at Marathon Nationals after, you know, two and a half, three hours, there was another kind of sustained 25-minute effort um, followed by some technical descending, and some guys attacked really hard at the base of this 25-minute climb, and I, I kind of knew the ballpark of the numbers that I could sustain for this climb and so I just settled into what I knew I could sustain by for a 20-25 minute effort and those guys uh, really strong climber Jeremy Martin kind of extended to to 30 maybe 40 seconds initially on the start of the climb and I was able to bring it back down to about 10 seconds by the top of the climb just pacing myself and then take advantage of the, the technical single track following that to kind of move through. That's where that experience plays in to let them get it to know that if they surged ahead you'll be able to bring them back if you just pace it properly right? Well knowing the kind of you know power that's going to get me to the top as quick as possible and know that knowing, knowing the kind of effort that I can sustain for sure. Right yeah makes sense. 
Um, so let's get into, I guess, the the specifics on the workouts that you do. Do you have any bread and butter workouts that you return to regularly or that you do frequently? Um, for example, I mean, a lot of guys, uh, Phil Guyman, we've had him on the podcast, and he talked about his 20-minute intervals, and he just used, like, 20 minutes on Mount Lemon was his deal. And he just kept doing the 20 minutes until he reached whatever goal he wanted. And it's a different approach, certainly. But do you have any bread and butter workouts like that that you always do? Well, I mean, there's certainly a bunch of different building blocks that I kind of put together depending on the, the season. Um, certainly there's, um, you know, kind of tempo workouts where I'll do 15 or 20 minutes times two or three, not, not max out, but kind of use my different devices to kind of rise the threshold. And those are definitely a, a check, check on my fitness as well. Uh, don't integrate as much physiological testing now with uh, all the stuff available I do a lot on the road with the different uh, meters uh, the power meter along with uh, just listen to my body you know breathing rate and uh, use a little uh, device called the moxie monitor that monitors uh, the muscle oxygenation as well how do you use uh, that data because that's interesting we've talked to those guys there at interbike really cool guys um, and it's a cool product it's, it's interesting stuff how do you use that well, yeah, it's definitely really in- interesting. I've started to use it a little bit to drive workouts. I'd, I've done a ton of indoor physiological testing with the Portamon, which is the more kind of larger medical, de- more expensive medical device, uh, looking at the muscle oxygenation, kind of varying kind of training loads or, or the intensity. And using the Moxie, I'll, it's not specifically the absolute number, but looking at the trend, uh, um, on kind of sustaining an effort um, and so it's a simple little device the size of a credit card you just kind of I strap on my leg and pops up on my Garmin as a percentage of um, oxygen in the muscle and I'll kind of you know target certain intensities and uh, kind of a stable reading uh, on these kind of long long workouts and definitely interesting to, to look at the data afterwards um, a lot of this stuff uh, in training, I'll go a bit on feel, a bit on power, but not absolutely stick to that. And it's really, I think, important getting that feel along with the data. Yeah, you to, have to, to have drive that. the workouts because the the conditions that can change with the you know the heat or the, the weather. Uh, so it's, it's definitely exciting all the different tools you can use in training these days. Um, but it's, I think for me, most important is correlating that back back with the feeling. So yeah. when you get to the race, you can really know know the feel of your body and control your effort but those like i said those longer efforts and for mountain biking now there's a lot of kind of you know on off stuff so i've had to adjust and put more of those kind of on off um efforts into my training and you know do a variety of different things like that just to stress the body above and I know from using now the last two or three years, we have stages power meters where I used to train on the road a lot with power, but now have it on every single bike, even my, you know, all mountain enduro bike. But we get specific data from my cross country racing, and I know, I know the loads that I need to do in, in the race. So I'll target those kind of intensities, and it's pretty surprising how much, you know, effort over 500, 600 watts we do in a race. So it's yeah, it's building those kind of on off. Uh, efforts at that level and uh 
going a bit on how I feel, how many I do, and how long I, I go, depending on the, the races and what's coming up. Makes sense that you and you. Do you feel like you are? You do more structure than the majority, or I mean, since you use different devices, like you said, you, you use a power meter, and you're even using the Moxie. I see a lot of mountain bikers, um, like Howie, for example, Howard Grotz. He's a uh, He's, he's famous for not using a power meter, and he's a mountain goat that goes to the mountains and just pushes hard, and that's how he kind of gauges himself. Do you feel you're unique in that aspect within the mountain biking world? I've definitely delved into the physiology a lot more, and it's kind of been interesting and motivating to me. I had a, yeah. had a mentor that I started out with uh, 20 years ago, and he really taught me what we're doing and why we're doing it, and, and kind of have that that mind that's really interested me to kind of and some of it's been useful some not but yeah i think like with howie it's most important is having that that feeling and uh you know correlating that i mean back in the 90s we were doing lactate and uh, a ton of lactate and you know thousands of tests and got to the point where i mean we'd have a game where we could guess guess what the reading was going to be and then be in you know Point one, point two. every wow. time just you know getting that feeling with the power and it's definitely i mean i use power a ton and uh it's definitely interesting to review it almost more than driving the workhouse to see the, the performance yeah because that's in the end that's what all that data should do right it should inform your perception it's it's something that it can help it can be a motivator if you need that um it can inform you so maybe you can back off a little more but in the end it really should just inform your perception so then you better can understand pacing because for some reason power meters also like to die on race day it always seems like so you're stuck without that thing and that's what you're that's your guiding light you'll be stuck um along those lines uh dealing with i guess adopting new tech or new different things in mountain biking i know one of the things that um man when i first got into mountain biking i remember my brother he's a big guy he likes wearing he likes he's always ran wide bars right and he's ran wide bars and then the whole industry started doing it he he it's something that he's always done and he mentioned that you actually were somebody that uh, somebody that's always kind of ran a wider setup on your bars as well why did you do that and it's kind of cool to see the industry catch on now but why did you do that no it's funny i think because uh first guy to win a world cup with the riser bar but that's because i mean growing up in bc um we have very you know technical trails and i think originally mountain biking crossed over from you know guys on the road and less technical trails and i mean even myself it was all about narrow bars squeezing between the trees but i mean the wider bar gives you more power and you have to relax a little bit more on the descents and uh kind of been at first uh, the downhill bars i mean came from you know motorbikes and downhill racers use them but they're really heavy and uh cross-country people started realizing the advantages and then we got the technology kind of caught up with lighter carbon fiber riser bars and wider bars and people kind of became aware of the advantages for sure what width are you running now on your bars <clears throat> um across country i'm probably around 715 mils mm-hmm. oh I mean, yeah, it's, back in the day, we were, you know, 580 flat yeah. bars. And yep. So it's uh, and it's definitely an adjustment. I mean, with the, the wider bars, you also have to adjust kind of shorter stem to kind of keep that kind of position on the bike. But, 
it's uh, definitely helps a lot, especially people are challenged with the, the technical stuff to get the more control for sure. Yeah, it gives you a whole lot more leverage over that bike. Yeah, it's way better. And all of us are on wider bars now, so you're a trendsetter long before that. Um, were there any other things that you adopted earlier? I mean, you mentioned power that you're using that. Some guys in the mountain bike world especially aren't even on power still. Are there other things that you've used or that you went to long before that it became prominent? No, I mean, for sure. I mean, maybe technical background. I mean, I work with companies and I think uh, not so much tradition, tradition, based on tradition, but I've been willing to try out new things. So definitely one of the first guys on the, you know, disc brakes with Shimano and, you know, one of the first, uh, along with Adam Craig, to race the single rings for sure. Uh, I think in 2009, like I said, when won my one and only World Cup. I think that was the first time a World Cup had won one on a single ring, and you wow. see that pretty much across the board. But, um, you know, I definitely analyze my equipment a lot, and uh, a lot of people can waste a lot of energy kind of stressing over it, but there's also some little gains, and I've always pushed the limits with, uh, you know, working with Maxxis running, I was known for running the super light, Max light tires, and uh-huh. um, definitely a risk, but, uh, you know, my strength was a technical, and I knew how to handle it, so... Right. Looking looking for those advantages, for sure, whether they be function or performance as well. So, talking about tires, let's hit on that subject right there. Um, you Like you said, running lighter tires with a less aggressive tread pattern, really, those uh, Maxxis Max Light tires, they've got small knobs, right? Almost um, no knobs, yeah. Yeah, almost none. Um, it, it almost looks like, is that the one that almost looks like a snakeskin style tire on the top? And it has side knobs on the edge, or is it just... It doesn't have any no, side knobs. Really. <laughs> nothing. <laughs> so why a lot of people end up going for something that has a little more grip. Um, yeah. I personally use the Ardent Race. That's like a tire that I regularly use. That, the Icon. Um, what? Why do you go towards something like that? What are the reasons behind that? Well, it's all about, I guess, performance. Uh, and it takes a lot of experience to know when you can use certain tires like that. Uh, and it doesn't work for everyone. But that tire, I mean, the Max Light is... I mean, ridiculously light, and uh, when you can handle that that tire on the trail, it, you get huge performances with acceleration and max speed. And but it's certainly it's a tire that I've used at Sea Otter Classic, which is you know wide open and fast and high speed. And you know courses where there's where there is high speed or some momentum you can carry, there can be a huge advantage. But um, I mean, as a technical being technically strong, I can kind of manage those tires in much broader array of events. Uh, right. But certainly, it's, it's always changing, and uh, it's nice to work with a tire company that, with Max has so many different models, but it can certainly be overwhelming trying to figure out what's the, the best tire for the best for each course, but um, that's one, I, the Max Light was one I definitely gained a little advantage and had a lot of victories on. So, where's the tipping point in terms of terrain on a course? When do you decide that you want to switch off the Max Light, and then what do you go to in terms of aggressive? So, going, where's that aggressive tipping point where you say, okay, this terrain is too rough, I need to get something gnarlier? 
Well, I mean, it's just we're um, losing more time than gaining, and then yeah. the Max Light really doesn't have much much grip. So if it's off camber and loose, then it goes away pretty quick. And I mean, the trend these days is going to a bit larger volume uh, and low knobs, and which kind of gives the lower pressure traction as well. Um, and one I've been using it a lot is, I mean, the Aspen is one that we race a lot at World Cups, and the Icon is one that's pretty much good across the, the board in most conditions. And those are the, I wish I wish we had more muddy races these days, but the courses have kind of been getting more and more manufactured and a lot more gravel put down on the XCs, so don't see the option to use a mud tire like the, the Beaver. Uh, which is Max's mud tire very often, so I mean a lot of the time it's an intermediate tire and uh, it's, it's pretty rare we get the extreme mud conditions these days. Now in terms of, so with XC you have a lot of guys are going toward full suspension cross-country bikes and we're talking less than 120 millimeters of travel, um, down to 100 millimeters or even 90 millimeters of travel. Which do you use? Uh, does it vary upon course and why? Uh, yeah, I mean, for sure, I think as more and more companies have a, you know, competitive full suspension, you've seen more and more guys, you know, realizing the advantage. Um, definitely, I race my, my Scott Spark, which is a 100 mil bike. I'll race it majority of the time. Uh, there's certain courses, like we were talking about earlier, the, the Carson City off-road, where it's, you know, an hour 45 of climbing that's not as technical and you don't get the advantages of the full suspension. I'll race it there and some of the short tracks we race the shorter harder 20 20 minute efforts uh, where there's not the technical but I mean the full suspension really shines where you know there's pedaling and momentum sections you can carry a lot more speed uh, definitely yeah, it's not just the descents right that's like something that people uh, maybe misunderstand is that that full suspension helps you when you're pedaling along the flat or even on some climbs it really does make a difference right yeah I mean you can it's carrying more speed and being able to pedal through the rough stuff and also you know in the longer races it's a fatigue um, the hardtail might be faster on the first couple laps earlier in the race but uh, towards the end of the race it gets a little more forgiving you know you can make a few more mistakes and I mean like it even helps with with tire selection uh, able to push the envelope on the tires a little bit more when you have this full suspension a little bit more traction and comfort and I do kind of gravitate towards the full suspension it is it is a different riding style switching back and forth between the bikes and sometimes I wish I didn't have the so many options but yeah. uh it's definitely uh, it's funner for sure on the full suspension if I can race it. Right. Um, do you think there's ever a time when we're going to go away from hardtails? The hardtails won't be used in XC? Uh, it's, it's definitely gotten more and more a bigger movement between towards the full suspension now with the especially the shock technology. I mean the weight penalty, I mean it's always going to be a little bit with the suspension but I mean I think the biggest hesitation was uh, you know, efficiency, and now with the lockouts, I mean, with, uh, I ride with Fox, and it's electric lockout, so it's just a little little switch on the handlebars can go from full, fully locked to fully open, so you get the fully locked, efficient climbing, and then a quick switch, and you're into full open descending mode, so it's becoming harder and harder to 
justify racing the full suspension when there's such efficient and light full suspensions. Uh, um, you're definitely seeing at the World Cup level there was a hesitation by some of the Europeans and top riders to race their full suspension, but now you even see the top guys like Nino Scherter and Julian Absalon, they're op- opting for their full suspension more and more. Yeah, uh, that brings up a question that somebody submitted, one of our um, one of our followers submitted on Snapchat this morning. They asked, they asked us to ask you why you think there's such a disparity between what we see in terms of the riders in the U.S. that dominate here stateside. When they go to the World Cup, it's it's they're they're, they're striving to get a top twenty, lucky to get a top twenty. Um, and, and and just to clarify beforehand, that's far from disparaging these athletes. I mean, the the top cross country riders here in the U.S. will tear your legs off, no matter who you are. They're strong, incredibly strong athletes. So, what is it? A cultural difference? Is it what? What's the difference between that? Or between the I two mean, that's players? a it's huge question to answer, and there's there's a lot of things that go into it. Um, I mean, just in general, in Europe, cycling is definitely more a mainstream support, and from uh, get much more athletes coming into it, uh, racing together, and pushing themselves as they come out through the system from a much earlier age. And uh, geography is a, a huge thing that North Americans have to battle, as well as access to high-level races. And you know, I've seen that uh, in my career. It's you know been really frustrating. You see the. Europeans complain about coming over to North America for a World Cup or two and you know we have to and full seasons have traveled over to Europe four or five times and it's uh, it's definitely I mean you just have to try to ignore it when you're racing but it's a challenge you know with the going over to Europe changing your time zone trying to keep the consistency in your your training and staying healthy uh, so it's an uphill battle uh, that way and uh, but you've definitely seen guys that have success but I've, I've seen you know it's such a huge advantage over there those guys that are, are home in their own bed you know day or two after and hanging out in their you know comfortable situation it's uh, just that consistency and uh, of training and staying healthy it always leads to good results and um, it's not impossible but it's definitely more challenging uh, here in North America racing in a European centric sport yeah yeah it's you know you bring up a good point because thinking about so Nino Scherter came to Sea Otter uh, two years ago I believe and he was there raced a short track event and it's not as if he just like lapped the field right like he it was a close race no I mean we've seen that uh even like in the cyclocross races, you know, a lot of the before Cross Vegas was a World Cup, the guys would come over. But you know, it's you still see guys like Powers and Trebon beating them. And uh, uh, I was just looking at the results, you know, and I was third there, and a bunch of the top Belgians were over. And it's it's a tough challenge traveling and adjusting to new surroundings, and uh, it's hard for them to come over here. And it's definitely uh, arts. It's a bigger barrier, so that's why it's it's nice. It's really great when we have organizers in North America that can put on high-level races and uh, force force some of the Europeans and people from around the world out of their comfort zone. Yeah, yeah, that's good to do. <laughs> I agree. Um, so let's get into the cyclocross side of things because you did a fair amount of that. Um, and, I mean, you've won five national titles. That's pretty solid. And that's actually what you're up here in the Sierras for right now, right? You're getting in some training before doing some cyclocross racing yeah on my way on my way from canada to to vegas and iowa for the first couple of cyclocross world cups but it's something you know i kind of started dabbling in the fall i in bc I had a couple friends 
They were really into cyclocross and went back, went down to Seattle back in the days of the Saturn Super Cup, which was late 90s, and just really, you know, fun event and atmosphere, and that's kind of what's always kind of drawn me back. Uh, it was really fun when we had the, the USGP series, which was the national series that really brought everyone together, and uh, just a fun culture, you know, having friends that race on the road, on the mountain bike, and some cyclocross kind of bringing everyone together at one event, and a uh, uh, lot of fun, and a uh, good way to kind of stay fit and motivated in the fall. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Now, what crossover do you get, do you think, from cross? No pun intended there, but what benefits do you see from cross going into cross country? Do you have to change up your training dramatically from cross country going over to cyclocross, or...? Uh, certainly, I mean, uh, for lo- many years, I mean, it's gotten more and more serious, but for me, cross was a way I just kind of coasted my mountain bike fitness in the fall and enjoyed riding and used use the cross racing almost as training to, to stay fit and sharp for those, those races, but it's certainly, I think it's some uh, athletes who just focus specifically on mountain biking kind of miss out a lot on the just not cross but as well as racing on the road um, the learning experience I think from the tactics and the, the different modes it certainly add a lot and I mean I had some of my best best seasons after going deep into the cross season and uh, just you know it's it's a long mountain bike season and it's an easy way to you know maintain maintain my fitness and like I said I wouldn't always train specifically but it'd give me a mental break through the fall just you know to you know have some fun fun riding and then the racing and cross kept me you know sharp for when I actually you know restarted my you know more focused discipline training in December it's kind of like a distilled race right they're shorter the courses are repetitive so it really it's it's tactics and and your fitness and your ability to repeat power output high power outputs so critical you know you yeah. can't really get away with with if you're weak in any of those areas so um along and with with cyclocross you're gonna go right race cross vegas which cross vegas is and and then iowa and, and more than that but focusing on cross vegas that's kind of a unique event you're at the big soccer field area the drainage ditch and it's pretty fast right <coughs> um do you change up gearing do you change up bike setup for cross courses for like that or do you mostly keep it the same i think majority of the cross season it's the bike setup is pretty similar it's just the tires i mean obviously it's it's dry and generally fast there so it's definitely much different race tactically than uh, a lot of the i mean especially the european cross race because it does turn into road race i mean uh, i i got caught up in a first lap crash last year and was you know almost dead last after getting hooked up with some guys but it was such a fast you know tactical race that i was able to you know just follow wheels and work my way back up into the the teens before having some more issues so motivated back there but it's i mean usually if you hadn't you know mistake or problem on the first lap your race is over but positioning is so important across but it's definitely a unique race and unique having it at night under the lights and really really exciting event that i'm looking forward to yeah it's a pretty cool vibe um let's get into just some final questions i guess that really uh, pertain to bike handling and technique that's one of your strengths and you've raced on the road as well as cross and mountain biking so you can provide like a good a good perspective a lot of people listening to this are road riders uh, that may do a little bit of mountain biking 
So what are some faux pas or some mistakes that you see road riders commonly do when they go over to mountain biking that they should avoid? Well, I mean, I think bike setup is one. Um, especially if you have a full suspension, there's a lot. It's going fast on a mountain bike has a lot to do with comfort level. So, I mean, getting your, your bike tuned up and the suspension balance is one thing, but I mean, one thing I see a ton is people riding with super hard tires. I mean, that's your only contact patch with the ground. And so it's been a huge change in my career, uh, starting out with tubes. And yeah, uh, back in the day we were racing and I'd race 52, 55 PSI. And it's pretty amazing now with the tubeless technology and down in the low 20 PSI. And that's gonna really improve the, the grip and confidence of a rider, especially a newer rider on the train. Nice. Uh, and yeah, I mean, it's definitely uh, one tip that kind of applies to all is just looking looking ahead. The farther you look ahead, uh, the big tip I always stress with riders is uh, the farther your brain can kind of process and look ahead, uh, the more you're going to be able to relax and let your bike go. And uh, unfortunately, it's, uh, speed solves a lot of problems and it's you've got to gradually work your way up. Yeah, yeah, that is true. That speed is a solution for a lot of issues, especially technical stuff. I mean, you you grew up and and you still live and, and up in Canada and BC, that's one of the most technical areas you can ride in. Um, has to be the best selection of technical terrain in the world. How did you get comfortable with that type of riding? Uh, was it something that just from a kid you started doing it? Do you remember how you got comfortable doing that? I think it's just, I mean, it's a... I mean, a huge advantage for sure growing up in BC because I always had that in my back pocket. And it's it's hard to, you know, put learn that in two or three days. And I think it's just slowly growing up, you know, learning, picking up stuff. And I think it's huge advocate of riding with people, you know, that aren't way above your level, but it certainly helps uh, riding with people that can push you. And uh, watching, watching better riders always help me, I mean, across people learn different ways but I definitely learn from you know watching better riders and their technique and body position and uh, it's definitely subtle little things that you gotta slowly slowly pick up with and uh, work on one thing at a time and eventually kind of like I remember when I started Nordic skiing trying to skate uh, the first time it's you know incredibly taxing and trying to balance on one ski and just (laughs) after putting in the time all of a sudden you finally clicks and you get that balance and you'll be able to glide glide on that one ski and it doesn't feel so hard anymore yeah no doubt well Jeff thanks thanks for the chat man Um, and good luck in Cross Vegas where can people find out more about you pretty much uh, at Jeff Gabush I'm on Twitter and Instagram and I'm sure Luckily, my name's pretty unique, so if you type in Kabush in the Google, it's either me or my sister. (laughs) Pretty easy to find. (laughs) Awesome. Well, thanks again, Jeff. No problem. Thanks, Jonathan.